Well, good morning. It is great to be back with you uh, today. I want to thank Michael uh, for very ably filling the pulpit over the last um, couple of weeks. Uh, I want to thank the elders for allowing me to um, go with Samaritan's Purse, and I want to thank Samaritan's Purse um, for sending me to northern Iraq uh, to serve the staff there. I'm, I'm deeply encouraged uh, to tell you that the SP staff in northern Iraq is passionately, faithfully committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, serving the people there with social justice most assuredly, but all as a means of building bridges of love that support the weight of truth of the gospel. The sectarian violence happening there is, is horrible, but what is intended for evil, God is using for good. People are coming to faith in the midst of a war-torn country, and I'm deeply thankful. So on, so on Tuesday, when I was flying back, I, I got to the Charlotte airport, and I noticed a couple of gentlemen in baggage claim. One had obviously just arrived. The other was there to pick him up. I, I wanted to take a picture. I even thought about maybe doing a selfie and getting them in the background, but I thought that would be too obvious. But I did look it up, and as I suspected, they were Greek Orthodox priests. They were dressed something like this. They stood out. Now, now, please understand, I am not being critical, just observing the, the long black robes with these huge, actually a little bit larger than that, these huge silver crosses. I'd wear one, but I think I'd be exhausted at the end of the day. Uh, besides, uh, maybe Jesus had something else in mind when he suggested we take up our crosses da daily. Well, it was obvious to everyone, I think, uh, uh, there that these two were some kind of Christian leaders or, or priests. I, I found it interesting, uh, given the text for this week, that, that many actually try to wear their Christian faith, even Christian leadership, as some kind of fashion statement, whether it's the old WWJD bracelet in your drawers, dresser drawer at home, or the, or the, the fish or cross tattoos, and if you've got one, that's fine, or, or, or the crosses around your necks or uh, hung in your, from your ears, again, fine. Of course, we could perhaps um, think of Catholic priests and, and, and bishops and cardinals and, and popes who sport the religious regalia. But just because we are Protestants and don't wear long robes does not mean that there is not some kind of clerical, acceptable clerical wear. <laughs> Fortunately, in the last few years, the look has become more casual, uh, jeans and plaid shirts to, to look more normal, I suppose. Every other year, I, I go almost every other year to this uh, pastor's conference called Together for the Gospel, about 10,000 largely guys there, 8,000 of them pastors, 7,000 of them, not kidding, not making the 7,000 of them in plaid shirts and jeans. <laughs> but here's my question, and I think it is a legitimate question. Why wear the robes? Big silver cross. I mean, does it make the wearer more holy, more Christian? closer to God? I think we would all agree, probably not. 
So, so then why wear it? What's the purpose? So you're seen as a Christian, a, a spiritual leader? Again, not trying to disparage, simply asking why? Here's a more fundamental question. What is it that makes a spiritual leader? Is it the way that he or she dresses? Uh, Further, is it some position of ecclesiastical authority, some title that they bear? Is it their knowledge of the Scripture that surpasses the average churchgoer? What makes a good spiritual leader, and since we're in a Christian church, what is it that makes a good Christian leader, a good pastor, a good elder? This morning, by actually by contrast, we're going to see uh, what Jesus said makes a poor spiritual leader. And certainly that includes uh, false teaching. But is there more for our purposes today? That is, are there qualities that that mark them as being in it for themselves? Because if you were in it for yourself, if I'm in it for myself so that you can kiss my ring, might as well wear the robe. It's been a couple of weeks since we were in Mark, so let me remind you where we are. It's still Tuesday of Passion Week, obviously a very long day. It began with a group of spiritual leaders, the chief priests and, and scribes and elders approaching Jesus with the question, by what authority are you doing the things that you're doing? That is Cleansing our temple, teaching, healing, things like that. You see, for them, spiritual leadership or authority was to be found in position. To Jesus, they they were saying, we see the long white robe, blue sash, all that, but by whose authority are you doing these things? And you remember Jesus' answer, John's baptism, from heaven or from from men, they couldn't answer, so Jesus didn't answer their question. Jesus then then told them a, a parable at the beginning of chapter 12, obviously condemning spiritual leaders, chief priests, scribes, and, and elders. Uh, then we see, the, nec- the next thing we see are three groups of people seeking to trap Jesus with their questions. First came Pharisees, spiritual leaders, and Herodians. Uh, theirs was a political question. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus' answer, remember, was brilliant. Render to Caesar things that are Caesar's, and then God to things that are God's. And, and next came the the Sadducees, spiritual leaders, the priestly aristocracy who controlled the temple you know, with their theological question. Remember about the resurrection, which they didn't believe in? They, they, they posed one of their favorite dilemmas involving a woman who had seven husbands successively, this is seven brothers, each of whom she uh, outlived. In the resurrection, they said, whose wife will she be? Jesus told them, you neither understand the power of God in the resurrection, and you don't understand the Scripture. And next came the, the, the scribe, <laughs> spiritual leader, asking the biblical question, which commandment is greatest? And Jesus answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this second is just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Great answer. And so after these verbal battles, they dared not ask him any more question. So Jesus then asked them a question, one they could not answer. If the Christ is David's son, how is it that David calls him Lord? Well, that then brings us to our text this morning in our continuing study of the gospel of Mark, still in, well, chapter 12. 
And then now think about it. Each of these questioners who came, with the possible exception of the Herodians, a political group, the rest of them were spiritual leaders, Pharisees and Sadducees and, and scribes, chief priests, elders. They look like spiritual leaders. They talk like spiritual leaders. Here's my question. Were they? They demanded and received spiritual authority because of the way they dressed, their positions, their theological systems, and even maybe their biblical knowledge. And, and Jesus pegs them because maybe the motivation behind their authority was not what it should have been. Read the text with me, Mark chapter 12, only three verses today, verses 38 to 40. In his teaching, Jesus, he was saying, beware. Be on the lookout, be on your guard for the scribes who like to walk around in long, in long robes. That sounds familiar. And like respectful greetings in the marketplaces. And, and the chief priests, uh, chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour house, widows' houses. And, and for appearance sake, offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Wow. So maybe religious regalia and religious activity does not a spiritual leader make. Some years ago, we studied Matthew together. In that gospel, we looked at Jesus' sermons. You see, the book of Matthew is kind of structured around those sermons. But, but the last public sermon that Jesus preached is found in Matthew chapter 23, and frankly, it's not a very pleasant one. It, it's that one that's filled with all of those woes. Remember that? Woe to you, scribes and, and, and Pharisees. <laughs> I'd suggest if he preached that in many churches today, it would be considered inflammatory, judgmental, condemning, unchristian, and, plain, and just plain not nice. One, one common, Terry calls it the most sustained denunciation within any of the gospels. Sustained denunciation. Does that fit your picture, fit your picture of Jesus, meek and mild? <laughs> the words of the sermon are strong, almost harsh. Make no mistake about it, Jesus opposed self-righteous religious hypocrisy, religious show, sham. Why? Because it was devoid of spiritual truth. Oh. They had the leader titles, you see, chief priests, scribes, elders, Pharisees, Sadducees. They looked good, sounded good, flowing robes, long prayers, no life. In that sermon, which covers almost all of Matthew 23, Jesus turned his full attention, almost fury, on the scribes and Pharisees, these religious leaders. He forcefully condemned them. And in doing so, I, I would suggest he'd identified several qualities of, of false teachers. There, I suggest even qualities of poor spiritual leaders. In summary, they are ostentatious, hypocritical, and exploitive. Can you think of anybody like that today? It's a challenging sermon. You know, I just got to tell you, it would be nice to preach feel-good messages every week, the kind where you leave really liking me. You know, messages Paul describes as ear ticklers, nice little homilies that make you really glad that you came, that made you, make you feel all warm and gooey. <laughs> maybe, maybe then we Christians wouldn't be called judgmental and intolerant. Maybe then we could just get along with everyone else. Jesus did not do that. 
There are those who would have us believe that Jesus was indeed meek and mild and, and loving, non-confrontational, non-aggressive, and certainly non-judgmental. And so then should we be? Problem is they've never read Matthew 23 or Mark chapter 12. You see, Jesus understood to accept false teaching in, in spiritual clothing, <laughs> robes, while appearing gracious and loving, non-condemning Christian is in reality terribly wrong and the most unloving thing that we can do. You see, in the end, allowing people to remain in, in lies is condemning them to an, e an eternity apart from truth and therefore apart from God. True love, you see, speaks hard truth. Hard messages such as Jesus preached, hard messages such as what we'll have this morning are absolutely necessary to our faith. From the very beginning, there have always been wolves in sheep's clothing, false teachers among the people of God. The loving thing for me to do as a pastor, as a shepherd, is to strongly warn you, beware. Jesus, you see, did that. In John chapter 10, he warned of false shepherds who would climb in through a window or climb over a wall uh, to, to, and devour the people of God in the church of God. We must always be on our guard. Fortunately, I suppose, when Mark gives his account of Jesus' sermon in Matthew 23, he gives it in three uh, short verses. Count yourselves lucky. It took me weeks to get through Matthew chapter 23. We'll cover it in one sermon today. Jesus here gives us a description of false teachers. This is what I'm suggesting poor, even spiritually bankrupt leaders look like. I'm going to suggest today that churches are filled with people just like this. Now remember, Jesus is talking about the scribes, the experts in the law of Moses. They were the religious experts of the day. And Jesus has some rather serious things to say about them. And and again, whether we like it or not, there are false teachers and poor spiritual leaders in the church all about us. While they may not wear robes, they, they demand the same deference. Over and over through the New Testament, we are warned about evil people, false teachers, wolves infiltrating the people of God. Acts chapter 20, Paul calls the Ephesian elders together to meet him. And he said this, be on guard. He must have got that from Jesus. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he, antecedent is God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them." We must always be on our guard. The world and, frankly, the church is full of liars, false teachers, false shepherds, wolves who would fleece the sheep, deceivers, spiritual abusers, those who would destroy the Word of God and, de and devour the people of God for their own benefit. Jude calls them hidden reefs, uh, hidden reefs, clouds without water, trees without fruit, waves of sea, wandering star. Peter calls them springs without water, mists driven by the storm, daring, self-willed, revilers. Paul's list, frankly, too long, but my favorite, he calls them just plain dogs. Fact is, Paul warned us over and over. There are bad guys among the people of God, and they seek to devour. And, and many times, they're, they're hard to spot because they're in the church. 
They, 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 they come in forms that look godly, that look spiritual, that look righteous. Many times they are the leaders, the pastors, the elders, the teachers, the ones that we're supposed to follow, right? How do you know who the bad guys are? Who do you trust? And if you are thinking with any insight right now, one of the questions you should be asking is this, what about you, Scott? How do we know that we can trust you? What about ABF? What about the other pastors? What about the elders? Many of you don't know us. You see us on Sunday. We clean up pretty well. But, but that's it. How do you know? Good news is we're not left alone to wonder who the bad guys are, specifically bad leaders. We're given descriptions over and over. This is what to look for. Know at the outset Everything about false spiritual leaders is arrogant, self-serving, and self-exalting. Let me say it this way. If you are in a church or a ministry where it is all about the leader and not about Jesus, run. What description does Jesus give us? Well, first he says they walk around in long robes. <laughs> Again, my, my, my question is why? I mean, clearly in this context, it was to be noticed, respected, deferred to. The word for robe is used in the rest of the New Testament to speak of angels' garments. <laughs> That's special. Uh, of, the, of the patriarch of, in the parable of the prodigal son, and everyone knew he was the uh, guy that's in charge, and, and the robe worn by uh, glorified saints in heaven. That's heady stuff. <laughs> no doubt these robes were very special. They had tassels, no doubt. They wore them around the hem of the garment, according to Numbers chapter 15. It says this, Speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. It shall be a tassel for you to look and remember all the commandments of the Lord, so as to do them and not follow after your own heart or your own eyes. The tassels were supposed to be there so it wouldn't be about you. So remind them to keep the law. Matthew chapter 9 suggests, by the way, that Jesus kept this law. He had tassels around the hem of his garment. But the scribes, they lengthened them. They made them very, very long and very, very visible. Why? To show everyone how committed they were to keeping the law. Did they keep it? Of course not. But, but, but the tassels looked good. And they convinced everyone just how spiritual and committed to the law that they were. All external show. Sham. What's that? What's that look like today? I mean, besides plaid shirts. I'm not talking about long black robes and silver crosses at the Charlotte airport. Well, what does it look like for a spiritual leader to be noticed today? I'm sure you've got lots of ideas coming to mind. Recently heard of a prominent pastor of a large, actually a mega church, who demands that his staff and people, demands that his staff and people call him pastor. He also demands that the staff stand when he enters the room and not sit until he says so. He demands it. Kind of reminds me of my military time. You, room 10 hut, you don't stand at ease till they say so. Anytime a religious leader, pastor, elder demands special attention because of his position, you are on shaky ground. 
There were some more things they did. They liked respectful greetings in the marketplace. <laughs> Call me pastor. Uh, they, they wore, that's why they wore the robes. So you knew which ones to greet, you know, respectfully. In fact, if you were seated in the marketplace, you were supposed to stand as they walked by. There were certain ways you were supposed to greet them, and it demonstrated your great respect and honor. I'm not going to go into all of that, but in Matthew, we see that they liked being called rabbi, which means master or teacher, or they liked being called father, which spoke of them being the chief of the rabbis or, or leaders, which uh, they liked being called uh, leaders, which spoke of their spiritual leadership and teaching roles. All of these titles, you see, spoke of a position of superiority, and they wanted their superiority in their positions to be recognized. Call me doctor, call me reverend, call me pastor. Reading. R.C. Sproul's commentary on this particular passage, and he says, you know, guys go to school so that when they graduate, they can be called reverend, and then they go to more school, and then they can be called doctor. And he says, then you really know that they've arrived when you can just refer to them by their last name, like Piper or Calvin, and then they've really arrived when they have systems named after them, like Calvinism and Lutheranism. Let me take an aside, because Jesus did in Matthew. There, in essence, he said, don't be enamored by titles of respect. It's just going to go to your head anyway. You, you have one teacher, that is Christ. You have one father, he's in heaven. And you have one leader, that is Christ. You're all equals as brothers and sisters in Christ. Have nothing to do with arrogant titles that place you in a position of superiority and everybody else a position of inferiority. Now, is Jesus saying we should never refer to our daddies as father or, or our teachers and professors as teachers or, or to our small group leaders as leaders? Not, not necessarily. The, the point is they wanted the titles of respect and authority. They, want, they wanted to be recognized. Once again, I believe this plagues leaders in the evangelical church today. It is all about them. Too many ministries are built on the charisma, leadership, gifts, and talents of the leader. I want you to know that the reason that I am a pastor is because God has called me and he has enabled me and he has gifted me to preach and teach God's word. That's it. Unfortunately, sometimes the sheep feed the false shepherd's ego. They overlook his abuse of authority, his lack of integrity, his less than accurate teaching because of his position. Can you think of, of churches and ministries across our country where the, where, where the leader is absolutely spiritually bankrupt and yet people still follow him? They call him pastor. They call him elder. They call him teacher. He must be right. We must be discerning. We must be able to spot false spiritual leaders. I want to say to you right now, if any pastor or any elder on the, in this church proves to be less than spiritual, then you fire us, you run us out on a rail, whatever that means, but it sounds painful. Whenever, whenever there was a gathering of people at a banquet or at a synagogue, they wanted to be seated in the most prominent seats before everyone, you see, to be noticed. At a banquet, the most prominent place was right next to the host. In, in the synagogue, at the, it was at the front, with a, with, kind of hard to preach this, with a raised platform from, from which the services were conducted. <laughs> Behind the, the speaker, 
Facing the congregation were those honored seats. By the way, the congregation sat on the floor. The scribes actually sat in front of what was called the ark that held the scrolls, the word of God. The picture was clear. You must come through us. You must come through us to get the Bible. Sounds to me like some churches I've been to where the pastor's seats are placed on the platform facing the congregation on chairs that look like thrones. These scribes wanted to look good, to have the places of preeminence. Everything was about how they looked, not who they were serving. Further, Jesus says in verse 40, these guys offer long prayers for appearance sake. There's nothing wrong with long prayers. But if you are praying so people can see you and be wowed by your spiritual vocabulary, then you are, then you are in it for the wrong reason. Ask yourself this question. Are your prayers in private different than your prayers in public? Why? Well, in response to these grandiose religious, to this grandiose religious sham, Jesus says two things. First, he says, these self-focused scribes are the ones who are devouring widows' houses. What, what, what does that mean? Lots of speculation. I had one commentary that gave six different ways in which they were devouring, read through them. In the end, we find they were the ones who took advantage of the marginalized, the vulnerable of society, widows, orphans, the poor, all to advance their own positions. I love the, the verse that Mike quoted, the religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, taking care of orphans and widows in their distress. I cannot help but think of those charlatans and the so-called prosperity gospel movement who promise you personal prosperity all the while getting rich themselves off those who have little or nothing to spare. They devour widows' houses. As a result, Jesus says, they will receive the greater condemnation. Literally abundant judgment. That is a very interesting, intriguing statement. Those who bilk God's people for their own advancement to build their multi-million dollar homes with their multi-million dollar net worth will receive a greater condemnation. This does not mean that they will lose some of their rewards in heaven. It means they will be condemned more greatly in the judgment to come. Don't mess with God's people. Those who truly know Jesus, there is no condemnation. These charlatans, however, who are in it for themselves will be condemned greatly. Don't mess with the people of God, the church, which God purchased with his own blood. Let me share some final thoughts. It has been suggested that the favorite verse of self-focused spiritual leaders in the church today is to be found in Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So obey me, your leaders, submit to my authority so that I can do my job joyfully, and if you don't obey me, it will be unprofitable for you. So it is in your best interest to do what I say. 
and they keep people under the thumb of an oppressive, manipulative authority. By the way, the pastor that I talked about earlier, who demands his people call him pastor and stand when he walks into the room. Also, as you're coming into the church, they used to do that, I don't know if they still do, would give the kids a coloring page, coloring page that had a drawing of him for, for the kids to color with this verse printed on the bottom. They start them young. I would suggest when a leader is focused on Hebrews 13, he's focusing on the wrong verse. What do I mean? That's not the leader's verse. That's the people's verse. The people are supposed to be focusing on obeying those in leadership, but the leader is supposed to focus on his verses. I don't know, maybe 1 Peter chapter 5. Therefore, I exert the elders among you. Here's your verse, leaders. You want one shepherd, the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. That's what a good spiritual leader looks like. I shared this story with you once before, a long time ago. You've forgotten it by now. My wife, Tan, and I visited some friends uh, down in Florida. When they talked about their church, we know, we'll call it First Church, we noticed that all they talked about was the pastor, what a great guy he was, how much he was in control of things. Really, they talked about that. They actually liked that. We, we went with them uh, to watch a passion play at the church. One of the associate pastors stood up to welcome everyone, and the first thing out of his mouth, first thing that he said was, on behalf of First Church and our senior pastor, we'll call him John Smith, and our senior pastor, John Smith, we want to welcome you tonight. I thought, what does the senior pastor have to do with the passion of Jesus Christ? Guy went on to make some announcements at the end. He said, after the play, our senior pastor, John Smith, will come to share some closing comments. As I waited for the play to begin, I looked through the program. It was really more, more than a program. It told a little bit about First Church, its history and purpose, and there was an invitation to attend, of course. I started counting. I had time. I kid you not, in this 12-page program, the senior pastor, John Smith's name, was mentioned 11 times to include the cover. Are you kidding me? He probably has his own parking space. I'm not saying that this guy is a false spiritual leader, but the signs of ego are readily apparent. Seems to be an awful lot about him. So briefly, what are the qualifications? I'm almost done. What are the qualifications for good spiritual leadership? If this is what is bad, poor spiritual leadership... It tells us to be aware of this kind of spiritual leaders. What would be the qualities that Jesus commends in this particular book? Well, we remember back in Mark chapter 9 when Jesus gave his second passion prediction. Right after he and his disciples are, are walking along, they begin arguing behind him. Jesus asked him, what were you discussing along the way? They were silent because they'd been, they had been discussing which one of them was John Smith, the, the, the greatest. To which Jesus said, sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and the servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking the child in his arms, he said to them, 
Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not just receive me, but him who sent me. Two quick qualities of leadership there. First, he who would be first should be last of all and the servant of all. You don't look to be out front, noticed, admired, respected. Rather, you look to be last of all and servant of all. Which leads to the second quality, who is the all, not just the important people who can do something in return for you. You don't serve just to get, you serve to serve. Jesus took a child, seen as least in society, by the way, set the child before them. Whoever receives this one receives me. Good spiritual leaders look for ways to serve even the least in the kingdom. Finally, last thing, Mark chapter 10, we read these words. Calling the disciples to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as leaders, <laughs> rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave. That's the actual word. Slave of all. For theme verse of the gospel of Mark, even the, son of, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You want to be great? Give up your life like Jesus did. Stand for prayer. Father, this is an incredibly important passage. In whatever position of leadership that you've granted to us in various responsibilities, we should read this text with fear and trembling, with aversion. We should seek to be the kind of leader that Jesus commends he or she who is servant of all. Father, may this not be this way among us as it is among the rulers of the Gentiles in this political, politicized culture and society in which we live. May, may we be people of grace and humility and love and service, caring for one another as you cared for us, demonstrating in your coming not to be served, but to serve, giving up your life. Thank you for doing that. In Jesus' name, amen.